Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Today's Gospel is one of the many miracles of our Lord Jesus Christ that were recorded in the four Gospels. And it's fitting that we hear of this miraculous healing because today we celebrate two luminous saints, one of whom had a very miraculous healing. This is one of the few days of the church calendar in which two of the saints in our church are commemorated. St. John of Damascus, who has the longest scroll on the back side of the wall there. And then St. Barbara, the great martyr, who's here next to St. John Maximovich. Both of them are celebrated today. St. John of Damascus, he was a very, very highly educated, intelligent man. He lived in Damascus in the time when it was under a caliph. Islam had swept through that, the area there, and so Christians were a minority. And he worked for the caliph. He was very highly regarded as a wise counsel for the caliph. But this was also in a time of heresy within the Christian church. And so the emperor in Constantinople, who was uh, a heretic, he wanted to have John of Damascus silenced because John of Damascus was writing great tracts, theological treatises, teaching the people the true and right faith. And so the emperor had a forged letter made and sent it to the caliph, and pretending that this letter was written by St. John of Damascus about his proposed desire to overthrow the, the caliph if the emperor would come and help him. So the caliph brought John of Damascus before him, his <coughs> beloved counselor, and in anger, felt betrayed by this betrayal and cut off his hand so that he could no longer write. That night he prayed fervently to Panagia and Panagia came to him and said, your hand is healed. And he awoke the next morning with his hand intact. <coughs> he went before the caliph and the caliph of course realized all of the treason that had occurred and asked for his forgiveness and restored him to his position. But at that point, John of Damascus then asked, request to depart to the monastery of St. Savas, and he remained there for the rest of his life. But in his gratitude, St. John of Damascus, who was, among other things, an iconographer, in an icon that he had of Panagia, he painted a third hand. And that icon exists to this day. It's called Panagia of Three Hands, out of his homage, his honor to Panagia. So that's a little story. I couldn't resist. St. John of Damascus and St. Barbara the Great Martyr and let them pass by without mentioning them. But we'll talk about this, this miracle that we read in the Gospel today. Because this is another profound miracle. A woman who has bent over for 18 years. She had this infirmity that could not be healed. Maybe it was scoliosis. We don't know what it was. She was bent over for 18 years looking down to the ground. And our Lord and his love and his mercy saw her within the synagogue. It was the Sabbath. Everyone was gathered together. And he healed her. And then, of course, we hear the rest of the story, which is the leader of the synagogue chastising our Lord for healing a woman with this great miracle that he performed. And we learn three important lessons from this gospel. But the first that we learn is that the one with the sickness wasn't really the woman. The one with the sickness was the leader of the synagogue. His sickness was inside of himself, wasn't outside like hers. 
And with his spiritual blindness and his hardness of heart, instead of glorifying God for this miracle, he tries to chastise our Lord. And he tries to say that a miracle is work. As though going out and plucking your grain from the field is the same as performing a miracle. As though our Lord should wait an extra day, one more day, and then he can perform the miracle. Then it would be okay. His sickness was internal, hidden inside until he revealed it, while her sickness was external. And he was oblivious to his sickness, whereas she was quite painfully aware of her sickness. But most tragically, the difference between the two of them and their infirmities is that hers was an infirmity of the mortal body, and his was an infirmity of the immortal soul. When they both die, her infirmity ceases, and his infirmity he brings into eternal life. This is sobering for each of us. What takes more attention, our physical ailments or our spiritual ailments? Diseases of the soul remain with us. We carry them into eternal life. Imagine being eternally bitter, eternally angry, or envious, or lusting without end. Truly, it's a hell. That's our experience of hell. So we must heal these ailments now. Not be lackadaisical about these spiritual ailments that we carry with us. Because we don't know when our end will be, and we bring them right along with us. If any of you ever read C.S. Lewis's Great Divorce, it gives a vivid picture. It is similar to our understanding. People who, when they enter into eternal life, into their bodiless state while they're awaiting the general resurrection, they bring all their passions with them. And they don't want to be healed. They can't let go of those things anymore, and so they keep in their bitterness or their anger or their envy or whatever it may be. Contrasting that, think about how much time and effort and money that we spend on healing our physical ailments. Grave physical ailments that we'll spend thousands and tens of thousands of dollars to heal so that our mortal body can last a little bit longer. Could we spend that much effort on our immortal soul? Because that's what we're bringing with us. Our body goes into the ground, our soul continues with us, with all of its virtues and with all of its passions as well. So let us have the same zeal for our soul's healing that we have for the healing of our own bodies. That's the first lesson from this gospel. The second lesson from this gospel is at the end of the gospel, where we hear the the ruler stands up and he chastises our Lord, basically says, come back another day and heal her because today is not the right day. Of course, he's so envious of our Lord that he's trying to find some way to chastise him. And our Lord says, you hypocrites, Does not each of you on the Sabbath day untie his ox or donkey from the manger and lead it away to water? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? Now to understand this analogy even more, you need to know that the word untie for the donkey or ox and the word loose, referring to the woman, is the same. And from his own envy. And so our Lord is pointing this out very clearly by saying she is tied up. 
just like the oxen or the donkey? Are we not going to bring it to water just because it's the Sabbath day? Are we not going to heal her just because it's the Sabbath day? And so in this, it says, all his adversaries were put to shame. You can imagine that scene, a room like this, maybe more people, maybe a few less, we don't know. A big congregation of people. And here the leader of the synagogue is chastising Jesus after he's just watched as this woman who is bent over rises up. And all the people are in awe and one, what an idiot. I can't believe that guy that he would say that. Whatever they were saying. You can imagine a room full of people and all of their, uh, their words pointed at that leader of the synagogue who is so ashamed. There standing in the midst of the people was a man who had his sinfulness exposed before all, for all to see. Sometimes we too as a community have times when grave sins of people are exposed. What do we do when this happens? Do we judge? Do we reject? Do we exclude? Are we fearful? God is merciful to many of us because our sins remain mostly hidden from all, other than from our loved ones. We can't hide it from them. We struggle privately, not publicly. So when we, whose sins are hidden, encounter a person whose sins are made public, we must strive for compassion because public shame is a very heavy cross to bear. And we must be careful because our hardness of heart or our judgment or, yes, our fear will say, like to the leader of the synagogue, you can imagine that synagogue full of people, and they're all saying, he did it to himself. He's so sinful. He did it to himself. It's his fault. He deserves that. Which of our hidden sins that God in his mercy has kept hidden from everyone else deserves such a cruel judgment as that? Or perhaps we think of our own sins as more, less harmful than the sins of those in public, which again shows our own hardness, our heart, our own callousness to not see the enormity of our own sins. We must have compassion for those who struggle with sin and their struggle has been cast into the public eye, giving thanks to God that our own sins are not exposed. This is another lesson that we learn from this gospel. The third lesson that we learn is that we must be vigilant. The leader of the synagogue was sinning in such a ridiculous way. We could all read that gospel, and as I'm sure you heard it, you thought, how ridiculous that he's saying these words. Why is he even letting the words out of his mouth? How foolish he is that in light of this miracle, he's saying these things. But the church doesn't give us the gospel so that we can laugh at and ridicule the leader of the synagogue. Otherwise, we're just like the people in that congregation. No, the Lord gives us this gospel so that we can see ourselves in him. How am I like that person? You see, he didn't get there in an instant. Yes, his statement was so ridiculous, so far off base that we can say, how ridiculous. And yet, he got there little by little by little. He distorted the law of God. He understood this one passage in this way, and this this way, and then this this way, step by step. St. Paisio says, 
Evil comes in small steps. If it were to come all at once, we wouldn't be deceived. This is the situation with the leader of synagogue. Little by little, he was led towards evil until he was deeply mired in it. And each of us, little by little, are pulled into evil. How far? God only knows. Our vigilance and our humility are our great safeguards against following that path. Because these sins, these grave sins, like this leader in the synagogue, they don't come from nowhere. They come from step by step by step by step. We must have vigilance. So when sinfulness is revealed, it should be an occasion to look inside of ourselves, of vigilance, of more self-reflection. How am I like that? This is how we should be reading the gospel. How am I like that? How am I like those who crucified Christ? How am I like those in the, the gatherings of the people who said, crucify him, crucify him? How am I like Pilate? Because I try to wash my hands clean as though I can clean my hands of something at which I am for fault. In all of the Gospels, we must see ourselves. Otherwise, we lose our vigilance. We get a little bit of puffed up sense of, I'm not like that person. Those people are so ridiculous. I can't believe he said that. And then we just let it pass by. And we become oblivious to our own sin, our own journey deeper and deeper into sin. So this gospel today teaches us many things. Once again, it teaches us the infirmities of the soul are of much greater attention than the infirmities of the body. It teaches us also that when someone sins publicly, we must have compassion. And most importantly, it teaches us that we need vigilance at all time because our enemy, as St. Peter says, is a lion prowling around seeking whom to devour. May it not be us, my brothers and sisters.